Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome, everyone, to the LSE. I'm Cheryl Schoenhart-Bailey. I'm professor in the government department here at the LSE. And tonight, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you Professor Barry Weingast, who's a senior fellow uh, at the Hoover Institution and also uh, the Ward C. Krebs Family Professor at the Department of Political Science, Stanford University. Um, I, I did have a conversation earlier this afternoon with Barry and confirmed that I did not <clears throat> get the wrong end of the stick here. I will say that originally, oh so long ago, uh, Barry was an economist who gravitated quite naturally, and I can say this as a political scientist, to the field of political science. Um, and I will say that as, as someone in the area of political economy, pretty much everyone, well, I don't, I, I don't want to judge everyone, but most everyone I know in political economy has at least heard of Barry Weingast. He is extremely well known in the field of political economy, uh, has written extensively on various aspects and, and topics within political economy, including regulation, markets, development, federalism, democracy, and I could continue on. The list goes on and on. And with his uh, quite extensive and impressive uh, list of publications, he has also won numerous quite prestigious awards for his path-breaking articles in political economy and for his overall scholarly achievements. I thought about trying to list some of them and then I couldn't choose because I didn't want to choose ones over the others. Anyway, it's a long list that, uh, that I won't even try to read out. The one unique thing that, uh, that I'll mention about uh, Barry Weingast is that, and maybe increasingly so, this is a bit unusual in political economy, he's a political economist who has a flair for economic history which is certainly near and dear to my heart. And you will see that writ large in his presentation tonight. So I'm delighted to, uh, to know that he brings all together three disciplines of economics, political science, and economic history in his talk tonight. His talk tonight, as you'll probably well known, uh, know is titled Friedrich Hayek and Adam Smith on the concept of liberty. Before I hand over to him, uh, just a few housekeeping items for those of you who are using Twitter, who may still be using Twitter in spite of its ownership issues. Um, you can see that the, uh, the hashtag is LSE Hayek. Um, as I mentioned to begin with, this is an online event and is being recorded and will subsequently be made available uh, by podcast. Um, just to mention that um, Barry will speak probably 45 minutes, perhaps an hour. We'll see how it goes. Uh, following that, we will have Q&A. We'll take questions from the audience, the online or the, um, the in-person audience uh, first, and then we'll, we'll see how we do with that and take questions from the online audience as well, um, time allowing. We'll try to get in as many questions as possible. 
finally, for both the in-person and online uh, audiences, if you could, when you ask a question, please give both your name and your affiliation. So without further ado, I am delighted to hand over to Professor Weingast. Well, I want to thank you for having me here. It's been really terrific spending a few weeks here and getting to make new friends, see some old friends, that sort of thing. And um, I want to begin with a prefactory remark. Uh, Fifteen months ago, I fell backwards and hit my head, creating a dramatic, uh, traumatic uh, brain injury, TBI. Uh, and so it manifests itself today uh, sometimes as, as when I'm speaking, I will lose my place. So uh, I hope that doesn't happen too often. It tends to be about four or five times an hour, something like that. Many of you may not even notice. But in any event, uh, I just want to forewarn you that, that that's, going to that's going to happen. So this is a new work, and I'm not sure how it's going to work out for me. Uh, and so I don't know if it's half an hour worth of slides or an hour and a half worth of slides. Uh, if it's the latter, I'll cut it off some points. So it's not to totally bore you, but uh, there we go. So here we have um, a saying from a couple um, Nobel Prize winners and what they say about neoclassical theory. Uh, so Doug North says in his Nobel um, address, neoclassical theory is simply an inappropriate tool to analyze and prescribe policies that will induce development. This theory is concerned with the operation of markets, not with how markets develop. All right. And then Ronald Coase in his Nobel lecture says, these ex-communist countries, oh, I should note that this is 1991. So that's uh, uh, when the issue uh, of the former Soviet Union countries was more urgent. So these ex-communist countries are advised to move to a market economy, and their leaders wish to do so. But without an appropriate institutions, without appropriate institutions, no market economy of any significance is possible. If we knew more about our own economy, we would, ha would be in better position to advise them. So I want to um, suggest neoclassical theory. Wait a minute. By neoclassical theory, so, so I've already read the top one. By neoclassical economics, I refer to the presumption that there exists a mechanism for the um, uh, uh, for securing property rights, enforcing contracts, and preventing arbitrary confiscation of assets by the government or the king. So liberty is a term that, that I, I, I want to bring back into economics. It's dropped out of economics modern, and, and, and modern economic parlance. And so I argue that it needs to be re revitalized, and this talk is um, one of the early uh, attempts to, to discuss this with you. So the creation of liberty, I want to argue, is at the heart of the problem of development, and that's both political development and economic development. Uh, many of the so-called classical liberals, and I'll probably say this six or eight times, uh, many of the classical liberals, including my erstwhile colleague at Hoover, uh, uh, Milton Friedman, get this issue all wrong, and I hope to explain that to you, and probably more than once. 
So Smith had a term natural liberty, and natural liberty was his term for the idea of um, uh, working within a structure uh, and maximizing the amount of economic freedom that was possible there. Uh, and, uh, 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 but, but I want to emphasize that it's not the only or even most important of his thoughts on liberty. Um, I, I say this because this is what the uh, Milton Friedman and his gang like to uh, emphasize as far as uh, the, his thoughts on liberty. All right, so the neoclassical approach presumes perfectly competitive markets, uh, the absence of arbitrary government, the absence of violence, and of course, classic works in the general equilibrium theory by, say, Gerard de Bru uh, or, or Arrow and Hahn, for example, uh, uh, fit in here. Uh, modern economics has grown, as people uh, uh, have been telling me since I started uh, discussing this here. Uh, modern economics has grown since neoclassical e economics dominated, say, in the 1980s. Um, so, and I call economists who make the presumption, this presumption, uh, subject to the neoclassical fallacy. That's a uh, term I will use again. Okay. For many tasks, I, I want to emphasize these presumptions are not problematic. So if you want to study in the developed world a tax cut or a change in welfare policy, uh, that's not a problem using um, neoclassical economics. On the other hand, uh, if you want to understand the problems of development, that's a very different story. And the reason is, is that we can presume uh, a rule of law, uh, governance, or judicial system in developed countries, but not in developing ones. And in fact, very few developing countries at all have um, very few developing countries at all have uh, rule of law institutions. So, the second aspect of the neoclassical fallacy is the um, uh, two is a two-step sequence. First, that markets exist, and then government intervenes into the market. And if you're a critic of markets, as many of uh, the people on the uh, right are, then it's too often for the worse. Uh, so, uh, but in the beginning, I want to emphasize it, there's forced violence in a confiscatory state, not liberty, competitive markets, and a benevolent state. All that's difficult to sort of engineer, and in particular, it's not something that uh, is easy to, to, to manufacture. The fact that very few developing countries can do this, I think, is, is uh, recognition of the difficulty of doing so that is, dealing with forced violence in a confiscatory state. All right, so Smith emphasized the violence among the great lords during feudalism. Um, and here's uh, what, what I call the target quote. Uh, target because, uh, well, let's just read it. The occupiers of the land and the country were exposed to every sort of violence, but men in this defenseless position the defenseless state naturally contend themselves with their necessary subsistence because to acquire more might only tempt the injustice of their oppressors. So as you can see, this is part of why he thinks that uh, feudalism is a no-growth society. Smith has a four-stages model, uh, and uh, uh, the first is a foraging stage, and the second is a shepherding stage. 
And he argues that this, this dominates a lot of uh, world history, uh, where status has to do with how many sheep you have, say, or how many birds you have, uh, and, and the like. And so this is a world of status and hierarchy with high income equality and lots of violence, both intra-group violence and inter-group violence. Uh, the next is an agrarian stage that I may not talk much about. And then, of course, there's the commercial society of the commercial economy, which was Adam Smith's name for the market economy. So liberty emerged only slowly and only in a few places. And then, then came the market, only after liberty was created or the process of creating liberty had occurred to a degree. So um, there's growing commerce in England from the late 16th century forward, both domestic and, in, and international. Um, London is the great entrepot of, the, uh, of Western Europe and the world. So London, needed, London needs food and firewood. And if London grows, it needs more of it. Uh, and so part of what that did, did is induce the marketization process up and down the Thames River Valley and some of the coastal riverine areas uh, of England. And so, uh, versus the, and so I want to contrast the marketization of the coastal areas, which are slowly, every, every year, um, there's more and more of the market. That is, more and more um, agrarian hinterlands is being converted from a subsistence economy to a specialization, specialized economy, uh, with the division of labor being uh, uh, essential here. Uh, one of Adam Smith's uh, uh, main issues about how, how growth occurs. Um, the agrarian hinterland is slowly being transformed into the limits of the market economy. Uh, and this is uh, part of what's happening in England, is England's being transformed. Uh, so there's an off-quoted passage of Adam Smith, which antedates the wealth of nation by 21 years. Uh, that is, and, and, and the passage is um, that all that is needed for um, development is peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. And so um, conservative, uh, uh, economists and politicians that quote Adam Smith often say, see, look how easy it is. Get the government off the backs of the American people, as Ronald Reagan said. Margaret Thatcher, I'm sure, had her own variation on that phrase. But I, I want you to observe something. How easy is it to get this? It says, it's easy, peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. If you're thinking about a developed economy, that's not problematic. But if you're thinking about a, a developing one, that's very different, because notice what it does. Um, first, as a purely normative statement, I have no problem with it. Uh, but as a positive or explanatory statement, it starts with the end of the process, development process, because in order to have a passable, a tolerable administration of justice, you have to have a rule of law producing set of courts. And that's not easy to get. Uh, so that's the hidden assumption. That's where the, uh, hat, the rabbit goes in the hat, so to speak. So, skip that. Um, next, I want to touch on the idea of um, the history of economic thought and its methodology. 
And this goes back, uh, this idea goes back at least to uh, uh, Frank Knight, writing in the 1930s. Uh, Frank Knight, one of the great early 20th century Chicago economists uh, there. And so he says, on the assumption that the primary interest in the ancients in such a field as economics is to learn from their mistakes, the principal theme of this discussion will be the contrast between the classical system and the correct views. In other words, what, 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 what the head methodology is about is uh, uh, taking, taking, uh, taking today's economics as the, uh, 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 as the yardstick or the meter stick, so to speak, uh, and using that to understand what's going on elsewhere. And the problem with this, of course, is that Adam Smith, uh, what, it is, what this implies is that Adam Smith could not have had understood something that the neoclassical economics misses, right? And so that means that, uh, uh, as a consequence, uh, uh, the head methodology is limiting. Uh, problematic for many reasons. Most important, Adam Smith and Hayek after him um, was not fettered by the neoclassical assumptions. Was not. So Hayek and Smith were both concerned with the exercise of arbitrary power by the government. So in other words, that's, that's a piece of this um, rule of law that, 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 that needs to be taken care of. Uh, uh, and and it is not a problem in most developing countries, but it is not a problem in most developed countries, but is in the developing countries. Uh, and so this is a problem that, uh, uh, for most purposes, modern economists can ignore. I should say modern neoclassical economists. So most, you know, and, and you're going to hear me say this again and again, most economists ignore the problem of violence and predation. So both are big, I want to, um, both are big problems in development today and in today's developing, developed economies when they were developing. So we're going to think about today's developed economies of Western Europe and the uh, North America as being a, uh, 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 developing economies at, at some earlier point in their future. So I want to study the latter problem in order to see what's missing from today's neoclassical development economics. Um, maybe that's a little bit too harsh, as people have been telling me that have been looking at this in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that uh, it's not all of today's development eco economics is neoclassical in the sense I defined. So I'll follow Hayek and use the 17th century England um, as our central illustration. Adam Smith discussed this quite a bit as well, as we'll see. So the problem to be solved can, put in, can be put in three different ways. So first is from high, transforming the country from high stakes to low stakes uh, politics. What does that mean? High stakes politics is where you can live in, where, where you can be killed for what you um, write say or believe. Uh, and so that, uh, uh, a low stakes economy where um, the rule of law protects you and so that you are not able to uh, uh, subject to arbitrary power in that way. So the second way is how to constrain the arbitrary power of the king. And here's some things that kings and authoritarians do generally. Uh, we see this with Putin, for example. Jail or murder opposition leaders forbid opposition organizations uh, and something very special to uh, 
17th century England uh, imposed taxes that are not first approved by a parliament. We have to remember in these days, parliament was not a, uh, was not a modern legislature. It did not do most things that legislatures do. Uh, it could pass legislation and it could pass, uh, uh, it could grant the king more taxes. But as far as auditing how the king spent the money, forget it. Uh, and then the third one is uh, uh, executive moral hazard. That's a modern term from economics where executive moral hazard is the king is, when the king has uh, 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 dealing with its own interests uh, in, in a policy, it's going to shave, the king is going to shave the policy in his favor uh, against that of his constituents. And that's part of what happens when they, do, when they um, uh, act uh, arbitrarily. So uh, I'm sorry if that was not as clear as it could be, but you can rely on the other two. Okay, so a roadmap. Um, we're going to um, uh, uh, first talk a little bit about the foundations of liberty. Uh, talk about the parallels between Hayek and Smith. Uh, talk about the emergence of liberty in early modern Europe. Uh, talk about one of my favorite topics, constitutions and credible commitments. I'll explain that term as we get further along. Uh, and Hayek and Smith made seminal contributions to these topics. Um, we'll discuss briefly, if we, if we get that far, well, about the classical liberals and the Austrian economists. Where do they fit? And then some conclusions. So what is liberty? Um, so it turns out many interpret liberty as maximizing uh, freedom within the law. I don't think that's good enough, and neither did Adam Smith. Um, and in fact, um, uh, Hayek did not either. Hayek argued that liberty is... Uh, uh, when you're protected as an individual from arbitrary exactions by the, uh, by the king. So Epstein and a host of conservative legal and economic scholars such as Barnett, Fine, McCloskey, Butler, Milton Friedman, all uh, argue that in terms of liberty being um, the maximization of freedom within the law. But again, that's already assuming that there exists a law. Uh, and so where does that come from? Uh, here's a great, great title that Kiba uses in 2014 uh, to describe a primer on uh, uh, this approach of uh, uh, classical liberals. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. So perfectly fine is a normative statement again, as we said, where normative is ought or um, what should be. Uh, but that doesn't help us with understanding how to create and maintain markets. So this is a problem for the so-called classical liberals because their attempt requires a well-functioning, non-corrupt rule, <laughs> rule of law producing judicial system. But, you know, as I said a minute ago, where does that come from? How do we get that? Uh, if we want to understand the nature of um, how economies uh, uh, provide for their, uh, their political and legal foundations, we cannot start by assuming that they, that they are there and they work. So as I've said many times, I'll say it again, few developing economies today have this. And we cannot look to these neoclassical theorists nor to the classical liberals for the answer. 
So, the rule of law. So what is the rule of law? I want to emphasize that legal theorists in the 20th century have spent a lot of time thinking about, about the rule of law. Uh, and uh, I'm going to just abbreviate that discussion here by looking at what Hayek and uh, uh, David Hume, among others, uh, suggest it is. So the first is laws have to be prospective. That means that laws are known in advance. Uh, they apply to e everyone in the same manner. Uh, and finally, they are stable so that they create stable expectations about what is required to be a good citizen. So Hayek says only one such principle can preserve a free society, namely the strict prevention of all coercion except in the enforcement of general abstract rules equally applicable to all. These page numbers are to the uh, Constitution of Liberty, of course. Uh, John Locke and uh, David Hume had very similar lists, as I suggested a minute ago. So there are few necessary conditions about the foundations of liberty. First, the enforcement of contracts, well-specified property rights, uh, security from foes, both domestic and uh, international, and then the removal of arbitrary power of the government so that the government cannot arbitrarily take your stuff, as Kib has suggested. Okay, limited government. So um, part of the point about the, the rule of law is that limited government is part, uh, is part of the deal. That, uh, and by limited government, I mean not in the modern American sense, but in the sense that um, governments can create and maintain limits on their own authority. This is pretty hard to do, and in fact has been done only in a number of, uh, small number of settings over the course of history, ancient Greece being a part of it. And, and, and the Roman uh, Republic as well. So let's take a closer look. I think we will skip that. So Berlin, Isaiah Berlin makes a really interesting distinction uh, about liberty, about multiple forms of liberty between positive and negative liberty. And by negative liberty, he means freedom from, freedom from the government, for example. Uh, by positive liberty, he means um, what you know. The idea of what good is um, liberty if uh, negative liberty if you're poor and living on the streets and can't afford any of the fruits of the society's uh, production of liberty. Uh, and so that's sort of a, a there's a clash there between those two and the people believing in those two, which I have a very different view on. Uh, so uh, contemporary political philosophy is dominated by forms of positive liberty. But I want to emphasize that these, um, that these sense of positive liberty also depend upon negative liberty. Uh, and Rawls, one of the great uh, uh, proponents of this approach in the uh, mid-20th century, uh, uh, suggested that negative liberty was necessary uh, uh, for positive liberty. So for example, he says that uh, individuals must have the right to, uh, 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 to follow their own interests, to, to, to act in their own interests politically, to run for government, for example, run for government office, uh, and, 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 and the like. Uh, and it's as if we must choose in this debate, which I think is uh, as you're beginning to see, I think it's ridiculous. I don't think we need to choose because I think that what they do is they, they are living in societies that produce um, economic 
benefits and the rule of law, and they just take that for granted. And if you take that for granted, then it's then, then, then you can see that this is just a form of a, another form of the neoclassical fallacy. Uh, that's kind of an aside. I'm not going to build on that in any way, but that's uh, an important piece of the puzzle of the larger puzzle about liberty. Okay. So the fourth condition is central. That's the uh, condition that the uh, 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 the condition that uh, uh, in individuals are not subject to arbitrary exactions by the government. Um, uh, Hobbes in, in Leviathan disagreed with the idea of limited government. He was writing just in the wake of the the, the British the English Civil War. Sorry, the English Civil War, in which he was arguing that. Uh, uh, the reason why the Civil War occurred was because people tried to divide power uh, in the se separation of powers sense. Uh, and it turns out that that's, uh, it, you know, and at the, for years I thought he was obviously wrong because later on you see the emergence of the separation of powers. But now I've changed my mind. I think that Hobbes was right in the sense that in the, um, uh, uh, Hobbes was right in the sense that um, so here's an example of my forgetting. Uh, so Hobbes, Hobbes was right at the time because at the time no one knew how to do it, as a matter of fact. And it takes uh, a series of, um, uh, of, of others to sort of fill out how that works. And so some of the greatest minds of this era wrote as if to challenge Hobbes. That means that they're not necessarily um, challenging Hobbes directly in the sense that uh, they're actually saying that we're going to challenge Hobbes. Hobbes is in the background for them. And so the, 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 those that I'm uh, actually right here are Locke in the Second Treatise, uh, published in 1689, and for years it was thought to be the uh, blueprint, uh, a rationalization for the, uh, for the glorious revolution of 1688-89. Uh, but, but sometime in the late 1950s or early 60s, uh, an early version was discovered in somebody's library, and it was discovered that, um, uh, uh, that uh, Locke had, in fact, written it far earlier. Uh, and so in that sense, it was, not a, it was a revolutionary track. Those of you that remember your 17th century England history, which I assume was not very many of you, uh, I, I had to build, my, build up my repertoire here as well at one point. Um, so that meant the, the, the fact that it was produced in, say, 1682 or 83 meant that it was a prospective plan for the revolution rather than an ex post uh, rationalization. So uh, David Hume, the Treatise on Human Nature, one of the wonderful creations of the early 18th century. Montesquieu on the Spirit of the Law. Adam Smith in his lectures on jurisprudence uh, in the Wealth of Nations, and of course Madison in, in the Federalist Papers. I want to emphasize something about Smith in the lectures of jurisprudence, because these are um, actually some... Uh, 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 by jurisprudence, um, Adam Smith meant uh, history, economics, law, and politics. So it was sort of a very encompassing kind of idea. Uh, and, and, and the like. Uh, and the lectures on jurisprudence have survived in the form of student lecture notes. So we have two different versions of this in different years, in different hands. 
and, so, and they say the same thing. So the idea is, is that, 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 that because they say the same thing and they're by different people, there's some sense that they are accurate reflections of what Smith was saying at the time. Of course, you know, these were lecture notes, and lecture notes, as you know, are things where professors often try out ideas, and so Adam Smith was most likely doing a lot of that in this, because when you read some of the passages that were taken from the lectures and read them in the Wealth of Nations, they have a much more polished form, uh, and the ideas are much more refined. So all of these, these scholars had um, uh, a separation of powers and the right of resistance. But the logic evolves from more complex to, in, create, to create more complex and sophisticated versions of these. So, so um, with Locke being the simplest and Madison and, and uh, uh, Adam Smith being the more sophisticated or most sophisticated. Now remember, since these weren't made available or widely until 1978, two years after the bicentennial of uh, the bicentennial of, uh, of, of Adam Smith's Wealth, Wealth of Nations, um, they weren't available earlier to earlier scholars. And that's part of, the, and so what we know about Adam Smith's thoughts about the um, uh, separation of powers, um, although written 25 years before Madison was not known and could not really be known until after uh, after 1978, and so I've written a paper on that as well. That's got a, uh, that details his ideas, including why it is that this is why it is that the Constitution uh, uh, is self-enforcing, self-enforcing in the sense that individuals uh, have incentives to abide by the prescriptions of the uh, uh, of the Constitution. So this is a, a real progress in learning. And I have a manuscript I'm dealing with on this, high stakes politics, uh, or high stakes to low politics. Uh, and so we see Locke, as I, I suggested, was simple in comparison to Smith and, and, and Madison, while, while the latter was very, very similar. So both Adam Smith and Hayek sought to explain the emergence of the rule of law. Smith, Smith focused on the towns and cities to escape from feudalism which I call the feudal equilibrium, meaning that they are, uh, 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 that it is a no-growth society and nobody has any incentive to change what they're doing acting alone. So that's sort of the Nash equilibrium perspective for those of you in the know. Um, but Smith also talked about the revolution of 1689. Uh, and Hayek, on the Hayek talked about the constitutional crisis of the 17th century England and also the American contribution of the late 18th century. Okay. So both Smith and Hayek understood that natural liberty was not enough, that, that they needed protections against arbitrary power by the king and that that was not forthcoming voluntarily from the king. Okay, so both emphasized the same solution, that is the separation of powers the king in parliament, uh, meaning that's a definition of sovereignty. So sovereign in a country is the individual that is above everybody else, an individual or a group of individuals. Uh, and uh, the king in parliament was a recognition that, that part of the problem in the 17th century was that the, uh, uh, 
the king alone could not be sovereign because that meant the king could act in ways that were arbitrary. Uh, whereas the king and parliament um, uh, gave both parties, that is both the parliament and the king, the right to veto uh, politics or veto policies and therefore to uh, uh, create the first uh, incentive system to uh, abide by the rules. The right of resistance has to do with uh, uh, the idea that um, The right of resistance is the Lockean idea, and we see it in all the rest, all the other four major, th major theorists of this era. And the right of resistance means that when uh, 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 the king, for example, has broken his part of the promise to abide by the rules, um, those that uh, uh, cit citizens are, um, uh, it is constitutionally legal for citizens to um, it is constitutionally legal for citizens to remove the king, for example. So, and of course, both focused on the role of institutions in creating incentives. So, um, this is an aside, and I think I will skip it. Was Madison influenced by Adam Smith? There's a small literature uh, on that, but I think I will skip that. As a so, Hayek on the emergence of the rule of law. This is one of his most famous sentences in the Constitution of Liberty. Individual liberty in modern times can hardly be traced back farther than England of the 17th century. It appeared first, as it probably always does, as a byproduct of the struggle for power rather than as the result of a deliberate aim. And then he says, in the dispute about the authority to legislate, the contending parties reproach each other for acting arbitrarily, that is acting that it not in accordance with recognized general laws, and that the cause of freedom was inadvertently advanced by, uh, by, this, by, by, by the, these issues. David Hume made an interesting point on this too, and that is the Stuart, um, uh, the Stuart kings, I'm jumping ahead of myself, let's skip this. Property owners sought protection for their rights. The rule of law was devised to protect individuals against arbitrary changes made by the sovereign for his private benefit at the expense of others. Significant limits on, on the sovereign, therefore, increase the security of property rights. We can clearly see here the struggle between the secure rights of all and the ability of the sovereign to bestow specific privileges to his constituents and supporters at the expense of non-constituents, non-supporters. And then he has this little uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, version about some Latin. The Latin word for law is legis. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, and that sand that stood in opposition to the idea of privilegus. The law was to be written behind the veil of ignorance, without regard to the specific individuals of particular cases. So the long-term struggle between Parliament and the King began over the economic policy, budgets, and the royal debt. So Queen Elizabeth died in 1603 at the beginning of the century, and uh, uh, they, they, they need, since she has no uh, uh, issue, uh, so to speak, uh, they, they have to look outside of England for a, or at least outside of the immediate hierarchy, uh, and that's where they come up with uh, a cousin of Elizabeth's, I believe, 
who is King James VI of Scotland, and he becomes King James I of, of England. Uh, so Elizabeth died with a debt of 400,000 pounds, and this is approximately on the order of 1% of GDP. Now, of course, we can't take that very seriously because the way in which this is estimated at the time is not very, uh, it, there's a lot of guesswork involved. So the, let, let, let me mention what the great contract was about. So the great contract is an interesting idea that um, uh, whereby the Stuart kings um, want more money than Parliament had granted them at the beginning of his reign. Uh, as he learns more about the fiscal system, uh, he realizes that he's in trouble. And so they, uh, the two sides, Parliament is willing to give more, mo more money to the king, uh, uh, but only if the king is willing to trade some limits on his authority. And this is going to portend, this is going to be the, uh, 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 we're, we're going to see this pattern again and again and again in uh, Stuart England with the Stuart kings uh, needing more money at some point and coming to Parliament and Parliament says, uh, uh, no, not unless you give us this other, these other ideas, limits on your powers. So, and this occurs every time a Stuart king runs out of revenue. So one question was, could the king sell monopolies as a source of revenue, such as in playing, card, playing cards. And, the, uh, uh, and so this generated the famous case of the statute of monopolies uh, by Sir Edwin Cook. Cook, I believe, is how you pronounce it, although Americans would naturally pronounce that as Coke. Uh, in which he says, the grant of exclusive rights to produce any article was against the common law and the liberty of the subject. The common law was the law that, uh, after the Glorious Revolution, which we have yet to get to, uh, uh, after the Glorious Revolution becomes the uh, main law of England. Uh, uh, the demand for equal laws and all uh, for all citizens became the main weapon of Parliament in its, option for, in its opposition of the king. So constitutions and credible commitment uh, 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 and the rule of law. So this goes back to an idea that Doug North and I wrote uh, in, uh, in the late 1980s. And the idea is, is that there are commitments have to be credible. So if you make a promise, it's not necessarily credible because it's not necessarily that you have any incentive to actually honor the promise. On the other hand, if you have incentives to honor the promise, then the commitment is credible. Okay, so that's an important distinction there. I'm going to give some examples in a minute um, about, uh, about um, sovereign debt, debt to the country. So this, let's compare the Stuart kings with the post-glorious revolution England. So this is pre-glorious revolution versus post-glorious re revolution. So the Stuart debt was never above $2, billion, $2 million. Uh, and some of it was forced, versus four, uh, seven years after the Glorious Revolution, uh, debt had risen to 16.7 million in the year 1697. So the Glorious Revolution starts in 19, uh, excuse me, 1689, and and, and so this is uh, so so, so um, government debt grows by an, an nearly an order of mag uh, more than an order of magnitude. Uh, and because capital markets are very sensitive to politics, 
that suggests that the uh, logic of, of a capital markets say that uh, the security and commitment of the, of the government was, uh, had increased quite a bit. Okay. So what was the Glorious Revolution? The Glorious Revolution was first and foremost a coup. That is, they got rid of King James the uh, second uh, and invited in a new king who was, um, whose wife, uh, Anne, Queen Anne, she became uh, uh, Queen Anne. Uh, and the uh, parliament wrote um, a bill of rights. That is, what the elite uh, 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 responded, how the elite responded to the Stuart kings and why they um, created this coup and why the coup would be something that uh, they would do again. So, and part of the reason, there's a very interesting thing that occurs. There's part of the reason William likes the idea of this. And, you know, in the beginning, he has no intention one way or the other of honoring the Bill of Rights. Uh, but he, he wants to fight a war with France. And because the, uh, uh, um, the British government, excuse me, the English government, uh, it's not Britain as I understand it until 1707, so a little bit. Uh, anyway, uh, 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 part of the reason they're able to fight such a big war is they're able to um, uh, borrow money, uh, uh, which is not expected. And so France is expected to win the war, and, and it doesn't. It creates a stalemate. Four years later, they fight again to, I believe, 1711. Uh, and that one is a clear victory for the, uh, for, for, for the British uh, and the like. So public debt, uh, honoring the, so prior to the Glorious Revolution, honoring the terms of debt was uh, uh, at the sole discretion of the sovereign, that is, of the king. There was no public budgetary process. Parliament had only a little role in the, limited role in the operation of the government. There's no ability to audit, for example, the kings early in the time, you know, early in the period. Some of the Stuart kings, for example, would, uh, would ask for money for a certain, to fight one war and use it to fight another. And, and so parliament had no, uh, no recourse to uh, actually do anything about that except next time refuse. Uh, but, but even that was of limited use. So after the Glorious Revolution, loans become loans to the government, not to the king. That is, an actual modern government is created uh, at this time. So they gain the right to audit, for example. And of course, one of the really key things is the king is no longer sovereign, but the king in parliament. What does that mean? That means that both of them have a veto power over policy. I suggested that earlier. And that, uh, 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 so why did this matter? Turns out Adam Smith provides the best answer to this. And that is, um, there's, as I said, there's no one above the sovereign. But if the powers are divided, then one part could prevent opportunism by the other. Uh, and so that make it so that uh, any attempt to break the rules, the constitutional law rules, then is, uh, 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 is illegal and would be pointed out by the other party. So here's Locke's, Locke's um, right of resistance. Uh, Charles I loses his, 
Yeah, this is sort of out of sequence. What this means is, I'm trying to suggest that it's that 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 um, uh, that the coup is, that 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 performing a coup is credible. Uh, and so one one instance of that is the king loses his head at uh, 1680. Uh, excuse me, at the end of the Civil War, uh, the Civil War from 1641 to 49, and the king loses his head in 1649, I believe, uh, and. Um, after the Glorious Revolution, another coup is credible. That's the, that's the key to that, that, that little confusing part there. So new institutions. Uh, law becomes sacrosanct. So parliament, only parliament can produce laws. So one of the things John Locke says is that the executive administers the law, does not create the law. Uh, and uh, 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 so only parliament can produce the laws. And, and this is something that... Um, William uh, ended up obeying because he, he, that is the Bill of Rights, he, William ended up obeying because of the, uh, uh, because Parliament was willing to finance a bigger war than he had anticipated. And so that really is the creation of a norm then, of a new custom. The British uh, Constitution, of course, is customary. So the king must observe uh, 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 the rules or risk another coup. So let's turn to the American uh, aspect, the American contribution, as uh, Hayek calls it. Uh, this is the logic of the right of resistance, but I think it's, it's getting late, and I think I'm going to skip it, as interesting as it is. So um, part of what Hayek does is he focuses on federalism, federalism being a, a, a very interesting aspect of the vertical separation of powers, or VSOP. Uh, with the horizontal separation of powers being the uh, uh, being the the standard SOP, and I think that since I'm a federalism scholar, I like the idea of federalism. Uh, I think that that it had a lot to do with how the United States succeeded. So, what is federalism about? Well, there are all kinds of implied limits on government. First, the form of federalism is a kind of federalism I call market-preserving federalism. There are many different kinds of federalism, so um, if you're listening to anybody and they're talking about federalism as if it's a single uh, type of government, you know they don't understand the topic. Uh, and so market-preserving federalism is a specific kind with strong limits on the federal government, so that the federal government is limited uh, 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 to public goods uh, uh, the, at the national or federal level. So one of the things that federalism does is that it creates competition among the states. So that colonies and later the states attempted to attract scarce capital and labor, and hence limits on the power of extraction and arbitrary power were really important, as was the expansion of rights. So examples incur uh, uh, banking, how banking emerged as a competitive system so that by the time you get to 1840, there are more banks in the United States than the rest of the world combined, over a thousand. Uh, but I will skip the interesting parts of that. And so on the frontier, one, one of the interesting things that's going on on the frontier is that there's uh, universal male suffrage is first created on the frontier and then brought back to the Atlantic seaboard. The same thing with women's suffrage at the end of the 19th century, where it's Wyoming out in the uh, uh, 
out in the American Plains that creates um, that creates the right for women to vote. First, creates the right for women to vote long before the national government does in the late teens and early twenties. Okay. Where are the classical liberals been? I think I'm just going to skip this. Let's end there, because I've talked quite a, quite a long time, so let's add some questions. Okay. Oh. Did you want to summarize, or you want to take the questions now? Yeah, let's take questions now. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so so what we'll do on, on the questions, um, Barry, did you want to stand there for the questions, or do you want to come sit down? You happy to take them there? I think I'll... Yeah. Perfect. Great. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we have obviously both the live audience and online. Um, and what we'll do is we'll take questions first from those of us in the room. Um, for those listening at home, um, please just type your questions into the Q&A box and we'll come to those momentarily. So yes. I'll open the floor um, in the second row, and then over to Tim. Yep. Yep. Um, hello. Can you hear me? Um, I think so. Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, my name is William. I'm the president of Liberty Society in Queen Mary, University of London. And I have two questions for you about the first one about how to maintain liberty. Now, do, the thing about do you agree that the ruler must be good enough to have good manners to maintain liberty and also anything we just said about how to have liberty and also about the capitalism. The second one about, I have I had an example of about the model of Singapore that is, they are a bit of dictate, dictated country, but the thing is that the people in there, they just willing to risk some of their liberty in exchange for their prosperity and their wealth. So what do you think about that? Thank you. Okay, let's work backwards through the two questions. So the first has to do with prosperity and wealth and whether there's a trade-off between liberty and that. And I think that um, in the East Asian model, certainly that's the case, but it doesn't seem to go on forever in the sense that if you look at Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, all of them have at some point become democracies. And so it's an open question, I think, as to whether or not, um, whether, whether or not that will occur in China as well or whether China will backslide, or whether China's model will end up producing a very different kind of outcome uh, than, than we anticipate. Uh, as to the previous question, how do you create uh, 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 credible commitments? Uh, that's what you asked? Yeah. What I would call credible Yeah. Well, the ruler, um, you know, the ruler is important, and so, um, uh, Madison in the Federalist Paper discusses this, and he says that the, uh, uh, let's see if I can get this right. He says that the, uh, if men were angels, we wouldn't need a government. Uh, but since men are not angels, we do need a government. And that he says, uh, the government requires, uh, um, rather than relying on the goodwill of individuals, we have to uh, think about the, uh, a government will, uh, uh, aux the phrase is auxiliary requirements. So, you know, the question is in China, which the whole world is waiting to see what happens. 
you know, is, is our, so let, let me leave it there. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, Tim, and then in the third row. Tim, Tim Besley from the LSE. Thank you, Barry. So I hope your lecture is principally a reminder of the deep historical roots of the partnership that's taken place of Besley's century and shifted Two centuries. Yeah, two centuries to happen. Is there a way of translating this historical experience into something that could be relevant to the many countries that you rightly point out have not made that transition? Holding coups doesn't seem particularly promising. <laughs> no, I agree. Very few coups of the kind that took place in the Soviet Revolution right. end up in a happy transformation of the kind you described. So, is there a lesson or? Well, one of my co-authors with uh, Doug Norris is John Wallace, and he has a paper called The Answer to Mary Shirley's Question. Mary Shirley's Question is a version of what Tim asked, you know, do, yeah, that is, do we have to wait two centuries in order to solve any of these problems? Uh, and I'm not sure he answered the question very satisfactorily, but I would say um, I think that one of the circumstances I think that makes it work is when there are uh, uh, when there's uh, violence, uh, external violence, for example. So I think Park Chung-hee, I think, is uh, uh, an example in, in Korea in the, uh, uh, by the time you get to the late, late 60s and early 70s, they realize that they cannot depend uh, on the United States for safety and security, and so they have to uh, become uh, uh, well off themselves. And they do so in a way that everybody uh, uh, is better off, almost, in this process. That is, there's roads to markets for farmers, meaning that farmers, uh, uh, roads to markets for farmers, meaning that farmers now uh, can participate in a specialized economy rather than subsistence. Uh, the bureaucracy, which is an important aspect of uh, all of the East Asian states, uh, uh, um, it becomes, you know, it's, it's, it's competition. It's always had a competition to, um, uh, uh, to enter, enter the bureaucracy, but now it's wider in terms of the scope in which people are, are able to do that. And um, let's see one other thing. Uh, in any event, the idea is, is that uh, security uh, it seems to be an important aspect of this. And people like Tilly, as you know, has written extensively on this. Uh, I'm not saying that's the only answer, uh, but that is an answer, I think. So in the third, the two, two in the third row, maybe, actually there are three, I think, in the third row, so let's take all three. 
Yeah, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Hi, Professor. Thank you for being here. My name is Zach. I'm uh, who was named development rank serial number. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm Zach. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. I'm a master's student in the International Development Department. Uh -huh. One thing I want to mention real quick, I can't help myself. I was at the Hoover Institution a month ago for that summer policy <laughs> boot camp thing. Yes. And uh, I was the one who won their little competition. So Secretary Rice is flying me out to D.C. in January to meet the Board of Overseers and stuff. Oh, nice. Well, congratulations. Thank you. But anyhow, my question, sir, is how you would relate these ideas on the concept of liberty to um, more modern international economics, where now you have, um, in some aspects, maybe federalism, where you can have organizations like the WTO yeah. that have binding decisions, that you can have um, above national sovereignty, and that you can have above national authorities, and how liberty relates to yeah. uh, interactions in the global economy that we haven't had in 17th century or 18th century England, or that sort of idea. Yeah, the way I'd answer that is, um, is to go back to Adam Smith, because Adam Smith um, was not always consistent in his views on things. And so one of the things he does is he's well known for his arguments about free trade. But elsewhere he says, uh, uh, when he's talking about the, um, uh, the regulation of, uh, uh, of trade, he says, you know, it's really important that we use this to protect ourselves and protect our markets. And so I think part of what he suggests is the nature of the um, empire is that uh, there's free trade within the empire, but not across empires. Uh, and so he says in, in the same, uh, about the same sentence about free trade, he says, he, elsewhere he says, um, but this is one of the best things that's ever occurred for England because it allows us to protect ourselves. So. Thank you. Do you want to pass the mic on? Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Amanda. A little I'm louder, please. Uh, is it working? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Amanda. I'm from the MFFS student program here at LSE, the distance learning program. And uh, I'm from Brazil and we're having a lot of problems with the three powers in our country because we see that the Supreme Court has been censoring uh, a lot of information, uh, journalist material. And I wanted to know in a democracy, how can we fight for our individual rights? Because we see that a lot of people are defending uh, censorship and other measures because they believe that collective rights are above indivi individual rights and it uh, is making the government com commit some abuse. So I, I wanted to know how do we fight for our individual rights and freedom in this context? So I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, could you restate it at its essence? Okay. Uh, in a democracy, how can we fight for our individual rights when uh, a lot of people are claiming for the government to, for example, um, avoid, uh, create regulations on uh, journalism and information? Okay, I think I understand the question. Let me see if I can repeat it. How do we uh, understand a democracy that's under threat uh, whereby the government puts journalists in jail, for example. 
Is that a good part yeah. of the question? Yes. So um, I think that one of the things, there are two different ideas about uh, self-enforcing constitutions. One is the idea that uh, uh, all successful constitutions have to limit the stakes of power. And the reason is, is if we think about Chile in 1973, when the uh, uh, landowners were threatened by the government, uh, a legitimate, whose legitimacy they did not question, by the way, the opposition. Uh, the landowners were, were, were being threatened by the government, and the government, uh, 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 even though nothing had actually happened yet. And so the, uh, in Chile, the, uh, the military organized a coup, and it was supported by landowners, a sufficient group of them, so that they were able to um, uh, su survive. Now, the second, it's, I just, I'm sorry for such a long answer. To, to, uh, the second idea has to do with the uh, uh, consensus condition. The idea that people feel that, that um, the Constitution is a good thing and worth protecting. And it's that part that is breaking down, poss possibly breaking down in the United States to a degree, and also in, in Western Europe. Uh, and how you get that has to do with um, issues uh, like, um, as I suggested with, Will with William, you know, the creation of new customs and norms. I'm sure that's not a very satisfactory answer, and I apologize for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think there was someone at the end of the, no, other questions. Oh, in the, uh, one, two, three, four, fifth row. Yes, thanks. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ivan. Uh, I'm a student at executive program of Master in Public Administration. Thank you for your lecture today. And I have basically two questions. Uh, we, you also introduced this uh, concept of Leviathan by, by Hobbes. And my question is why, we've been discussing this growth of Leviathan for, for 400 years already. And in their book of how to uh, reinvent the, uh, the state, uh, Adrian Wooldridge argues that this Leviathan have been growing since. I'm so sorry? That this Leviathan of public administration mm -hmm. have been uh, has been growing for the past 14, four, 400 years, right? Uh -huh. So there is always the, the government power have been increasing um, all, all the time, more or less. So my question is, why do we let uh, the government to rise in, in the sake of our liberties or in the, in the cost of our liberties. Okay. And How about if we take that one first? Yeah. Before I forget. Um, I think that's a really interesting issue. I mean, one of the things that's occurring over the course of the um, Industrial Revolution is the idea that uh, Markets are expanding in the sense that networks are net networks and markets are growing. So in the beginning, there's not a lot of um, public goods with respect to um, the economy that is regulating the economy. Whereas by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, you got all kinds of things that create these new market systems that where, where our markets are increasing in scope and scale. And so I think that part of it is a trade-off that people feel between the um, 
nature of the uh, uh, market and the new kind of problems that occur, uh, and expanding government power. And so I think that that has, you know, one could say in a normative sense, that is, ought, uh, don't do that, right? But, but, but I don't think that helps because that's not, that, provide, that, that doesn't provide any new kind of incentives. Thank you. Um, I think we'll, we'll take a couple of questions from online and then we'll come back to your question. You want to take Okay, so we have a question from Deborah Dean. Um, she's a PhD student from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Do we need to be looking at big tech, i.e. Twitter, Meta, Facebook, Amazon, etc., and not the government as the new king in the modern digital economies? Is liberty being left behind, and is the economy being financialized into a simple wealth extraction mechanism for the big tech oligarchs? Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure well, I understood she had that. time to draft that well. <laughs> I'm not sure I understood the question. The full horse of it. Do you want to say that? Yeah, go ahead and repeat it. Uh, I, actually, could I paraphrase it? Because I, I'll, I'll say it in a cruder way, because I was sort of thinking something along the same, not as elegantly as that. But so it's a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Is, um, neither Smith nor Hayek were living in the world that we live at present, uh, with social media online 24-7 echo chambers, and so on. Where, one might argue, we have liberty writ large. And we have the commercialization of all sorts of aspects of free speech. What might Hayek or Smith have said to enlighten us as to the way forward in this new world, this new digital world? Well, let's start with Hayek. I think Hayek was, um you know, very interested in the relationship between individual and society, right? And he had this, you know, book about the road to serfdom, about growing popular, uh, popularity of uh, uh, socialism, for example. And, sorry, I'm losing my, my train of thought. So Hayek, uh, the road to serfdom, uh, and I think he was very nervous about collectivism. And part of what's going on in the new economy is very different, right, in terms of the nature of the problem. But it has aspects of the other, the, the, the other problem, that is the collectivity uh, and the way in which that, that, that sort of prompts people to uh, behave in a very different way than expected. That's not a very satisfactory answer, but... Uh, well, perhaps the answer is they wouldn't have tackled the, the new world very well, but we, we well, can talk about that. I think that's true. Okay, all right, great. There was a second question, and then I think we have one more question from the audience. Yes. So this one is from Jeffrey Thomas. Berlin's two concepts of liberty is never fully appreciated. In developed countries, we have our freedom to pollute, add to greenhouse gas emissions, and developing countries do not have the freedom from being affected by actions of others. How do you reconcile this? This could be the case for in intergenerational effects. Hmm. That, that question ended in a place I didn't expect it to end. <laughs> uh, uh, intergenerational issues are difficult and we're learning a lot more about them 
My son is a millennial. He's 30, and he is uh, constantly reproaching my wife and I for being part of the uh, boomer generation and how we are handing him and his generation a world that is, shall we say, not as pleasant as the one that we grew up in. Um, so I'm not sure I, I got the, uh, the, the question there, I'm sorry. So I think, I think that the heart of it is a question about how you would sort of envisage liberty in a different context. Like for our generation, one might argue we had greater liberty to do all sorts of things, own houses, pollute, and do all sorts of things that then have repercussions for our children and grandchildren. And so one might argue that we're constraining in an intergenerational way their freedom. So, any thoughts on that? Well, certainly that looks like it's the case, you know, to the extent you believe in global warming, you know, then it certainly looks like we're doing just that by not acting with more enthusiasm and earnest, uh, earnestness. Uh, and, and so in that sense, I would say, um, it, it, in many ways it remains to be seen what's, you know, how this will all play out. Thank you. I think there was one last question, and I think then we'll 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 call it an, an, an evening in the fourth and fifth row. Hi, professor. Um, I'm I'm a year one student. You need to hold it yeah. closer to your mouth. Thank you. Is it okay? Yeah. Um, so I'm a year one student here at the LSE taking uh -huh. uh, BSc Economics. So my I have a very straightforward question, and that is. Uh, do you think China will democratize? And uh, more specifically, do you think China is moving away from democracy? Um, let's start with the first part of that. Is China will become a democracy? I think that that's where the, uh, as I mentioned er to an earlier question, that's where the, uh, you know, if they follow the, the model of other East Asian states, then the answer looks like it's going to be yes. Uh, on the other hand, you know, one can worry about what's happening, what is she doing, and how will that affect the economy? And will that, you know, raise the specter of um, uh, uh, government arbitrary exactions by the government as the government becomes concerned about um, uh, growing opposition? So it really depends upon the issue about how long people are willing to trade off the uh, 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 li li liberty in the short run for prosperity, and uh, I think I think uh, uh, no nobody knows the answer to that question. So. Um, I think I think that's probably the end of the the, the Q and A. I because Professor uh, Wangus needs to be elsewhere at eight p.m. So it sort of aim to, uh, to leave off at quarter to eight. So um, with that, let me thank uh, Barry Weingas for um, a fascinating discussion and for both our audience in person for, for turning out and for those of you at home. Um, and watch for the podcast when that emerges. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. 
we hope you join us at another LSE event soon.